This podcast has been sponsored by Rabbi Chaim Herring and Terry Kravosha in honor of their parents, Jack and Roberta Herring, and Judge Norman and Helene Kravosha. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please visit pardes.org.il. And now, here is Larry to introduce the podcast. From the Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Shoftim with Rabbi Meir Schweiger. Rabbi Meir Schweiger is a senior faculty member at Pardes and also serves as a Pardes Mashkiach Ruchani, the spiritual guide for Pardes. And now, Rabbi Meir Schweiger. Thank you, Larry. This week's Parsha is Parshat Shoftim. In the past, we have discussed how our Parsha outlines the four institutions of leadership in the Jewish people, the judges, the king, the priest, and the prophet. And to a great extent how there is a certain, what we would call today, checks and balances between all the different groups. Today, I would like to focus in particular on the institution of the judges, the legal system, and to see how the rabbis saw our parsha as the foundation for what we generally speak of as rabbinic authority. At the very outset, I would like to say that the topic, which is the parameters of rabbinic authority, will not be discussed exhaustively. For that, you could take a whole semester course at Pardes. I would like to simply open up the discussion based on our parsha. There is an attached source sheet, so please follow along. We'll begin with the verses that are relevant to us from our parsha. This is Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 8 through 11. The opening verses of the parsha speak about setting up an intricate legal system to have courts in every city. I might even add in every district. But what I would like to examine now is what happens when the courts encounter a situation, which for whatever reason, and we'll discuss this further later, they're incapable of adjudicating. So in verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8, it says, in a situation where there is a case which is too baffling to you, then you should get up and go to the place which God has chosen, which is a reference to the temple, as we know from last week's parsha. And then you are supposed to go before the priests or the magistrate, seek a decision, and do according to whatever they tell you. Parenthetically, the rabbis, based on this verse, understand that there is actually a preference of having priests on the court for a variety of reasons. And then what it says in verses 10 and 11 you shall carry out the verdict that is given to you from the place which the Lord chose and guard to do all that they instruct you. It reiterates it by saying, you shall act in accordance with the instructions that they give you and the ruling that they hand down to you. You must not deviate from the words which they tell you, either to the right or to the left. 
And today I am interested in focusing on these two verses, the last two verses, which essentially is the basis, which are essentially the basis for rabbinic authority. The first reference that we'll be looking at is from Midrash Tanaim, which is a collection of Midrashim from the period of the Mishnah, what we call Midrashay Halacha, and essentially these Midrashim are dealing with the ver- verbosity of the two verses. Essentially what we're saying is, do whatever they tell you. Why do I have to articulate it in so many ways? So if we look at the Midrash, it says, the phrase, in accordance with the instructions, these are referring to the fences, enactments, and practices which they instruct the public in order to strengthen the religion and to perfect the world. The ruling handed down to you, these are the laws which they derive from the 13 hermeneutical rules and from the words which they tell you. In verse 11, these are the oral traditions handed down from generation to generation. And I added in parenthesis, going back to Moses at Sinai. Now, what's being said over here are essentially three areas, you might say three sets of laws, which the rabbis engage in, and which in fact they have been empowered to do. And let's perhaps go backwards. The last one is the idea that the rabbis are in a certain sense the preservers of the traditions that were handed down to Sinai. And we find throughout the Talmud a number of examples of laws which are referred to as halacha Moshemi Sinai. This is an oral tradition that was handed down to Moses at Sinai. For example, many of the laws that have to do with tfilin, with the phylacteries, are halacha Moshemi Sinai. The fact that we take the four species, that although the Torah tells us four different types of items, what exactly those species are seem to be part of an oral tradition. Those are one set of laws which the rabbis have been entrusted with to hand down from generation to generation. There is a second set of laws, and that is... The rabbis have been given the tools, what we call hermeneutical principles, with which to interpret the Torah. And there is one tradition of 13 hermeneutical laws. There's another one of 32 hermeneutical laws. And on the basis of how you use these tools, you can extrapolate different laws. For a moment, I want to jump down to number three, Maimonides. In the Laws of Rebels, Mamrim, which is actually the continuation of our section from this week's Parsha, it speaks about a rebellious elder who goes against the high court. And the Rambam, when he codifies the laws of this rebellious elder, he begins by outlining the parameters of rabbinic authority. And let's just look at this for one moment. So the Supreme Court, this is reference three, 
The Supreme Court in Jerusalem represents the essence of the oral law. Its mem members are the pillars of instruction, legal decisions. Law and order emanate from them to all of Israel. And then the Rambam says, whoever disregards any of their instructions is violating a prohibition, as we have in verse 11, do not deviate. And then the Rambam brings the three categories of laws which were mentioned in the Midrash Tanaim. But the reason why I looked at the Rambam is for number three, in reference three. There has never been dissension among the sages with regard to laws handed down by tradition. Anything concerning that which has been, anything concerning which, where there has been dissension is certainly not a tradition dating back to Moses, our teacher. With regard to rules derived by rational inference, then it's possible that there may be a consensus, then it's possible that there may be a disagreement, and ultimately that disagreement is resolved through majority opinion. But if I now go back, oral traditions that date back to Sinai, there is a consensus, there is no disagreement. Where we find disagreements in the Talmud, those disagreements are a result of different modes of interpretation of the text by rabbis who would use perhaps different principles of interpretation, and as a result of that, come to different conclusions. And that is the middle category that we discussed. What, in fact, is the first category? The first category are laws which the rabbis enacted. If categories two and three have the status of Torah laws, where the role of the rabbis is either to be, as I said, the preservers or the handing down of the traditions, or the ones who are given the tools to interpret the text. In category one, the rabbis are actually given power to make enactments which go beyond the text. And there are different types of enactments. There are gzerot, which are fences, where the rabbis might say, don't do X, lest you come to violate Y. In fact, the first example of this is actually in the Torah itself, where God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of knowledge. And then later on, Eve said, oh, not only should we, are we not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge, but we're not allowed to even touch it. And the rabbis see this as the first example of a fence which is created around the essential law. Or another example where the Torah says, do not have sexual relations with, take your choice, your sister. But then the rabbis come along and say, not only should you not have sexual relations, sexual intercourse, but in fact, perhaps you should not have any type of sexual contact. So these are fences. What are enactments? So one example of that is actually what appears later on in my source sheet, and that is in reference number four, lighting candles on Hanukkah, celebrating Hanukkah, celebrating Purim, having four cups of wine at the Seder, or altogether having a Seder. That is a rabbinic enactment. And as you see in number four, all rabbinic enactments 
are anchored in the prohibition of, and you shall not deviate. To the extent that when we light Hanukkah candles, we make a blessing. Blessed art thou God who commanded us to light. But the question is, where did God command us to light the candles of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is not in the Torah. And the answer is, God commanded us to listen to the rabbis. And when the rabbis enacted the holiday of Hanukkah and created the rabbinic mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah candles, it is actually anchored in the authority which is given to them in our parsha in verse number 11. So, in fact, if I were to summarize what we have from number two and from the Rambam in number three and then from reference number four, we see that the rabbis are given the authority to ultimately be the ones who hand down the laws of God that were given to Sinai, who interpret the Torah based on principles that were handed down at Sinai, and who in fact have the ability to make enactments which go beyond the Torah for whatever reason they see as being important to the religious life of the Jewish people. What I would like to now focus on for the rest of the podcast is verse 11, which is very, very interesting in what it says at the very end. Do not deviate from what they will tell you to the right or the left. And this phrase, to the right or the left, has become the basis of extensive discussion by a whole gamut of commentaries on the Torah with what I would say far-reaching implications. But what we will do today is to simply examine or begin to examine those implications. So let's begin with reference number five, which says, right and left, it's a Midrash Agadah. And again, this is from the period of the Mishnah. Even if they say to you that right is left, and left is right, do not deviate from their words. Now, if I take this Midrash Agadah at face value, what it's saying is, the rabbis are now given the authority, and I am commanded to listen to whatever they say, even if what they're saying is wrong, which is unbelievable in terms of the power which has now been given to the rabbis. Note reference 6, which perhaps qualifies this a bit. In reference number 6, and I want to preface this by saying that there's a question of the correct text, and especially in the English, what I have written is according to the Vilna Gaon, which given the text seems to be the most, how should I put this, uh, appropriate reading of the text. This is again a Midrash Halacha, the Sifrei, which says, even if it appears in your eyes that right is left and left is right, listen to them. Now the phrase appears in your eyes is very, very important. And we will see this will become the basis of a huge discussion. Are we speaking about something which the rabbis have said, which beyond a shadow of a doubt, is wrong. There's absolutely no question that they have made a mistake, which is glaringly wrong. 
Or is it that what the Torah is saying is, even if you think they're wrong, give them the benefit of the doubt. But if you could somehow prove absolutely that they're wrong, then the implication would be you're not obligated to obey them. So here, I want to open up this discussion. I have what might seem to be two different midrashim. One, a midrash agada, which says, whatever they tell you, listen to them. Another one which qualifies it by saying, if you think that they're wrong, listen to them. Give them the benefit of the doubt, which might imply if you know they're wrong, don't listen to them. And now let's look at reference 7 from the Jerusalem Talmud, which says the following. I might think that if they tell you that right is left and left is right, that you should listen to them. Hence the text states, right and left, only when they tell you that right is right and left is left. Which means that this reference from the Jerusalem Talmud seems to be saying, where the Sanhedrin is telling you something which clearly is wrong, don't listen to them. You only have to listen to them when what they're telling you, it would seem, is right. So on a certain level, it would seem to be, I have two, perhaps, taking these, these rabbinic statements at face value. Number five and number seven, which would seem to be polar opposites, where number five is saying, obey them. One might even say blindly, no matter what they say. Number seven, which says, be critical. If what they're saying is wrong, then they don't have any authority over you. And on the contrary, I would even add, don't listen to them. You only have to listen to them. Their only, how should I put this, source of authority is when what they're telling you is right. And number six is somewhere in the middle, which creates a very fuzzy area of where you think they're wrong, but maybe they're not. And now I would like to look at this final source from, as I said, the period of the Mishnah, Okay, which is a very famous story from the Mishnah Masechet Rosh Hashanah. There was a dispute between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua about the declaration of the new moon. There were witnesses who came that Rabbi Gamliel accepted, and I'm not going to read through it. You can do it on your own. Rabbi Gamliel accepted these witnesses. Rabbi Yoshua said that what they're saying is impossible astronomically, or if we would put it in different language, objectively speaking, it can't be. And hence, Rabbi Yoshua was not prepared to accept the ruling of Rabbi Gamliel. And in this case, the Mishnah goes on to say Rabbi Gamliel asserted his authority and commanded Rabbi Yoshua to appear before him with his staff, with his money, on the day that, according to Rabbi Yoshua's calculation, was Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Yoshua was very distressed, and Rabbi Akiva tried to make him feel better, and said, but we have this verse from Leviticus, in the context of discussing the festivals, which says, these are the festivals that you shall declare, and Rabbi Akiva makes the drash, which is, whether you have proclaimed them at their proper time, or whether you have declared them not at their proper time, these are my festivals. 
And in fact, in the Midrash Halacha, the Sifra, on that verse, if you look at reference number eight, the Sifra at the end, if they sanctified the moon under duress or negligently or mistakenly, from where do we derive that it is sanctified? Because the text says that you shall proclaim them my, flesh, my festivals. You, even mistaken, if you proclaim them, they are my festivals. If not, they are not my festivals. And on the basis of this drash, Rabbi Yoshua accepted Rabbi Gamliel's decree and actually appeared before him and in effect accepted his authority. Now, ostensibly, this reference also seems to be saying that even if the rabbis make a mistake, and in this case, Rabbi Yoshua was convinced that Rabbi Gamliel had made a mistake based on scientific calculations, nevertheless, he accepted Rabbi Gamliel's ruling, which would be, seem to be saying, like what we had in reference number five, accept what the rabbis say, even if it's a mistake. So now I would like to look at the different commentaries that we have, and that essentially <clears throat> is reference number 10. Rashi quotes the Midrash and seems to quote it as is. Even if he tells you that right is left and left is right, and certainly if he tells you that right is right and left is left, which means to be that Rashi seems to be saying that whatever the rabbis tell you, you need to obey them. But now let's look at Nachmanides, who says, Nachmanides begins by quoting Rashi, but then he says, even if you think in your heart that they made a mistake, and the matter is obvious to you in the same way that you were able to differentiate between your right and left hand, do according to their directive. Do not say, how will I eat this prohibited fat or how will I kill this innocent man? Rather say, thus commanded me the master of all of the commandments, that I should do according to the instructions of those who stand before him. Now, if I were to stop here, Nachmanides seems to be going according to number six, which is even though you think they made a mistake, follow what they say. And not only that, but it seems to be that this is also how he interprets Rashi. But then Nachmanides goes on to say, to quote the story number eight of Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua. And he says, even if they should err, you listen to them. I would just like to point out that many later commentaries assume that Nachmanides is of the opinion that it's only if you think they made a mistake that you follow them. But if you actually knew they made a mistake, you wouldn't, which raises a problem with the story of Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yeshua. We'll come back to that in a moment. But now what I would like to look at is the rationale behind it. And it's interesting that Nachmanides mentions two things which we'll see. If we look at the second paragraph, the need for this mitzvah is exceedingly great. Since people have divergent opinions, there is the danger of proliferation of disagreements and of the Torah becoming many Torot. So Nachmanides says, why is it that we are giving the rabbis 
such authority, such power. And that is essentially to preserve the unity of the Torah. Because if in fact you don't give them that authority, what will happen is people will come along and say, well, you say this, I think this. And then all of a sudden you'll have everybody doing something different. And rather than having one Torah, we have many Torah. This idea is articulated by many, many different commentaries. The idea that the purpose, the emphasis on listening to what the rabbis say is to preserve the unity of the Torah, to preserve the unity, one might say, of the Jewish people. And I would just like to say parenthetically, this is part of, as I said earlier, a much larger discussion, that it would seem to be that this is what is motivating Ramin Gamliel and being so authoritarian vis-a-vis -vis Rabbi Yoshua, because Rabbi Gamliel is very concerned about the possibility of what we would call schisms within the Jewish people. And it's important to note that Rabbi Gamliel is living at the time when Christianity is about to take off, and so that the concern for sectarianism is something which is paramount. And therefore, what you're saying here is we need to close ranks. We need to preserve a sense of unity and a sense of the unity of the Torah. Now, that's one argument. A second argument, if you look a little bit further down in the paragraph, is where he says, because he gave us the Torah to be interpreted by them, even if in your eyes they are interchanging left for right, you should certainly assume that they are saying what is correct, because the Spirit of God rests upon those who serve in his temple, and he will not abandon his pious ones. They will always be guarded from mistaken errors. Which means that the second interpretation which the Ramban is giving is, you think that they're wrong, but it can't be that they're wrong. Because God's Spirit rests on them. Because God will not abandon his pious ones. Now, I would just like to point out that the Ramban once again comes back to this idea of where you think that what they're saying is wrong, but it may very well be, and, and I would even say more than that, it most likely is that what they're saying is actually right because of the reasons he mentioned. Now, there's only one problem with that interpretation, which is, well, what do I say in the case of Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Gamliel? Presumably, both of them are pious. Presumably, both of them, right, are people who have this inspiration from God. What makes one more correct than the other? And the answer might be that there is no reason to say one is more correct than the other. So that in the case of Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Gamliel, the only reason for giving that authority to Rabbi Gamliel is, as the Ramban said in the beginning, so that the Torah does not become many Torot and so that a schism is not created within the Jewish people. Now, if I look further down, Rabbi Eliyahu Mizrahi, who is a super commentary on Rashi, he takes this latter idea of the Ramban and sharpens it even more and says, because the Spirit of God is always upon those who serve him. He will guard them from errors and mistakes, and only truth will emerge from their mouths. So he's saying, if the rabbi said it, it has to be. 
But once again, I come back to the problem, according to Rabbi Eliyahu Mizrahi, but what happens when I have two rabbis who disagree, who are of equal stature? So then, are both of them saying the truth? And which one do we go by? I want to, again, put that question on hold for a moment. But I now want to point out that it seems to be that we have two explanations of why it is that we invest the rabbis with this, with this authority. One is, we want to prevent arguments among the Jewish people. We want to prevent what I call the schism among the Jewish people. And the second one is that we, in a certain sense, give them the credit that they actually are tuned into truth with a capital T. And that somehow, okay, even though we don't see it, because of their piety, because of their erudition, God will not allow them to make a mistake. I want to actually now jump to something which appears later on, and that is in the very last reference I have, the Kliyakar. And what the Kliyakar says, which is very, very interesting, at least on one level, and the reason I'm doing this is because of the question of Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Gamliel, is that throughout the Talmud, we find that people argue. Some people say impure, some say pure, some say prohibited, some say permitted. The very dynamic of the Talmud is based on argument, on machloket. So doesn't that create different Torot? And what he says is a very interesting point. I'm going to just take one point that he says, and I'll come back to something else later. What he says is that in every matter, there are many different sides to the question. There is a side which says it might be pure. There's a side which says it might be impure. There's a side which might be a good reason for allowing. There's another side which might be a good reason for prohibiting. And essentially what he's saying is something which appears throughout the Talmud, which is, these and these are the words of the living God. Which means when I have rabbis who argue, I see in each position an element of truth. But at some point, I may have to make a decision. And so therefore, what I want to now say is the following. If we're talking about laymen vis-a-vis rabbis, or if we're talking about, I hate to use this term, but it's the only best way I can describe it, little league or minor league rabbis, compared to major league rabbis, then when I see them saying something which to me seems to be wrong, give them the benefit of the doubt because of their erudition, because clearly there is maybe something lacking in me vis-a-vis them. And so therefore, that's one aspect of giving them the authority, give them the benefit that they know more than I do, that ultimately they have a better idea of what the Torah wants me to do. But then there's a second element, which is where I have rabbis on equal footing, both of whom are heavyweights. And why should I necessarily say one is more correct than the other? So that it's not that I say one has truth and the other doesn't, but what I say is we have to make a decision that will ultimately prevent schisms that will ultimately preserve our unity. And that's the story of Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, which means 
Although it's legitimate to argue, but at a certain point, when it comes to acting in practice, maybe at a certain point for the sake of the unity of the community, we have to give someone the last word and be willing to accept the decision which they make, because otherwise one Torah will become many Torot. I would like to just look at two more points, and then I'll close up the, our session. The Abarbanel, again in reference number 10, if you turn down, if you scroll down, starts out by beginning by quoting Rabbeinu Nisim, who's a very, very famous commentary on the Talmud, who lived in the 1300s, who actually says and takes the statements literally, whatever the rabbis tell you, you should listen to. And it seems to be saying that even when they make a mistake, listen to them. And it could very well be that this is his understanding of the story of Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua, that ultimately, whoever has the authority, the Sanhedrin, should get the last word. And the reason that he gives is because, again, we want to prevent schisms. With the idea being that in the overwhelming situation, this is what he says, I'm just paraphrasing it, in the overwhelming number of situations, we can be convinced that the rabbis know what they're talking about. There are, as he notes, few situations where maybe they might make a mistake, but tolerate, accept the mistake that they make in those limited situations, because ultimately we create a greater good by following the rabbis across the board, as I said, because that preserves the unity of the people. The Barbanel himself, later on, gives another ruling, which I think has sweeping ramifications today, another interpretation, I should say, which is fascinating. And essentially what he says, if you look at where I wrote a Barbanel continuation from above, he says that there are general laws which appear in the Torah, which by and large are just, upright, and are the right thing. But the laws of the Torah cannot take into account every single situation. And hence, there may be certain situations where when we apply the general laws, that can actually become abusive. And to take the example which the Barbanel gives, I lent somebody money, but I didn't write it down. I didn't do it in the presence of witnesses. That person denies that I ever lent them money. According to the rules, the only way that I can claim my money is if I can prove that I did this. If I can prove that, in other words, I lent them the money, if I can prove that I never got it back, but if I can't prove it, then I can't get my money in a court of law. Now, if you follow the general rule, that will end up being a perversion of justice, because in this particular situation, right, I will lose my money. Take another example. I witness a murder, but because I am one witness, or perhaps because maybe I am a relative of the person, I cannot testify and convict that person. Or maybe take another example. Two witnesses came, 
but for whatever reason, they were not able to warn the person before the act. But they witnessed a murder, and justice would say that person should be punished. But according to Jewish law, there's due process. In order to be able to punish that individual, you need to have two witnesses, you need to have a warning, you need to have acceptance of the warning. Which means that if I follow the general rule, in effect, that person will now be let off, scot-free. So what do we do? And therefore, the Abarbanel says, which is very, very interesting, is that very often I have a tension between the laws of the Torah and between the application of those laws to very specific situations. And although the Barbanel says, in general, we assume the laws of the Torah are upright and just, but it might be in a particular situation, it's unjust. So what do we do? How do we balance preserving the laws of the Torah and at the same time trying to minimize the injustice in any particular situation? Again, I'm throwing out an example. This is the basis of a much larger discussion. According to the laws of the Torah, a man is the one who is to divorce his wife. A woman cannot initiate divorce proceedings. But obviously that can create a very unjust situation of where you have an abusive husband who refuses to, quote-unquote, release his wife. So what do we do? So what the Barbanel essentially says is, that it is the job of the Sanhedrin to be able to strike that balance. And that, in effect, is what the verse is referring to when it talks about right and left. When you have a conflict between the general rules and then the application to a particular situation, and they make a decision, which might be, in one case, to uphold the general rule, in another case, to somehow bend the rule to the particular situation. Accept what they say. Don't doubt them. Don't question them. Because ultimately, they are the ones who have been entrusted with the authority and with the ability to strike that balance. I would just like to end with something which comes up in that vein at the end of the Kliyakar, where the Kliyakar adds one caveat that when you start adapting the general rules to a particular situation, how much of a basis do you have to do that? Is there some sort of minority opinion that you can actually base yourself on to do that? And at the very end, he says, if you don't have that minority opinion, then you can't make that adaptation. Interestingly, the Kliakar in his whole discussion and what I gave you, takes this beyond the Sanhedrin and brings it down to the level of any scholar or prophet in making that decision. So what I, I would like to summarize what we've just looked at. Our parsha becomes the basis of rabbinic authority, of the role of the rabbis to be the guardians of the tradition, to be the interpreters of the text, to make enactments, to build fences. The text invests them with tremendous authority slash power, and that can be seen on two levels. On one level, where the assumption is 
because of their knowledge, because of their piety, they are in a much better position to know what is the right thing to do. But beyond that, that at a certain point, it may be important to invest somebody, and perhaps I, I will say now some person with authority, in order to be able to prevent schisms within the Jewish people, in order to be able to create a sense of unity within the Jewish people. How do we act when we think something is wrong? So what I would take from this is, first of all, perhaps be willing to give people who, more than, who know more than you the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, I would also say that people should be willing to exercise a very critical faculty. And in a situation where they're convinced that someone is saying or doing something which is wrong, to, on the contrary, not just follow blindly. And the last thing which emerges is that there is always a tension between the general laws of the Torah with all of the interpretations and with all of the nuances and the application to very, very specific situations. And at what point do we preserve the general rules? At what point do we make a shift to acknowledge the need of a specific situations? That is very, very challenging. And perhaps that requires some type of authority that commands our respect and that will hopefully know how to strike that balance. As I said, this is the beginning of a discussion. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Schweiger. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.